0: Paranormal Radio. And now, here's
1: Gene Steinberg. So we're welcoming back to the Paracast my old dear friend David Halperin. Although there was a period like in the mid-60s where he and I disagreed about a case in public, and we had some fascinating debates on it, but disagreeing never takes away one's friendship. I know there were a number of years when I was not in touch with David. I'm quite happy to be in touch with him again, especially since he is still following this crazy subject about UFOs. David, welcome back to the PowerCast. And just very briefly, before we get to the meat of this conversation, I'd like you to tell our listeners quickly where your views stand about UFO reality. Go ahead, please.
2: Okay. I do not believe UFOs exist in the physical sense. I believe they are visitors from inner space. That is to say, a psychological phenomenon. I do not know if we fully understand the phenomenon or its dimensions. What I'm convinced is that it's an enormously important subject. It's never lost its power for me, even when I stopped believing in UFO's literal reality. And as we've had much opportunity to see this past summer, it has great power for others. And I think we have to understand that power And behind the question of power, we have to understand its meaning.
1: Now, why do you say this past summer it demonstrated it had great
2: power? In what sense? It seems to me that UFOs have filled the media. Beginning in April, when the Defense Department confirmed those UFO videos, going on through the summer when the New York Times, which now seems to be unabashedly pro-UFO, began releasing more details of the continuing Pentagon programs about UAP's unidentified aerial phenomena that the, the Senate Judiciary Committee called for investigation of UAPs. Senator Harry Reid of Nevada was quoted in the New York Times as having said that there had been crashed UFOs that have been retrieved. And then in August, the Defense Department announced the formation of a new group to deal with the UAPs. I do not remember any time in the past in which UFOs have had such respectability as they have this past summer. So why
1: then would the Defense Department, people like former Senator Harry Reid, who was at one time the Senate Majority Leader, why would they embrace something that is a psychological phenomenon?
2: Because clearly they don't see it as such. And I need to ask, what is there that gives them the conviction that it is real and vital to study. Because in a sense, I would accept both of those statements, just not in the strictly literal sense.
3: Okay, so last time we had you on, we got into this. I really love having you on because what you have is a different way of looking at the phenomena. It may be the case that both views aren't mutually exclusive. It may be the case that we're talking about a combination of something that is a reflection of our inner psyches, but is also physical in nature. And this brings up a really interesting point that we've been talking about on the Paracast community forums for, well, years now. How do we identify and explain The inner psyche, our consciousness, the presence of consciousness in the first place. When we start to look into that question, we can say, well, if UFOs are a manifestation of our inner psychings, maybe everything else is too. How do we tell the difference? How do we know that we're not just brains in a vat? That virtually our entire worldview is just made up of an illusion of some kind?
2: Yeah, I think this is a very old philosophical question. I think that Samuel Johnson was asked, how did he refute an idea very much like yours, the one you've just expressed, whereupon Johnson kicked at a rock and said, I refute it thus. Now, I don't know if that is an adequate refutation, but I think most (laughs) of us find our surrounding world, the desk that I'm sitting at, the laptop that I'm facing, the mostly bare trees that I see outside the window, those parts of our external world have a stability about them. They will stay still if you go out to touch them. If I were to go out through the door, I could touch that tree. The UFOs seem to have a greater degree of elusiveness. No question about that.
3: But then, you know, when we're talking about the physical, one of our forum participants, who goes by the name of Marduk, he made a really, really good point about the physical and what we might sort of have a notion of as being the non-physical. And that is that anything that can relay information to us in our physical world, in other words, if we think we're physical and we can sense it, by its very nature, whatever it is must also be physical in nature. Otherwise, it would not be able to impart anything into our physical existence whatsoever. And so, this this raises the point of, but well, what is physical? Either everything is physical in a sense, and that includes you know things like light waves and other very ethereal things, or more material things like uh, you know tables and chairs and rocks that we kick. Okay, and how do we reconcile that?
2: Like, how, how can we say one is physical and one's not? The one that's physical is the rock we kick, and what is not physical is the light waves. Well, I think a physicist would say light waves are very physical. They're made okay, of so
3: photons. What, they're made I, of photons. They they're measurable. They what I'm saying, I mean, there there isn't a physicist alive who would say that light isn't a physical phenomena. Okay, so what are you saying is the non-physical? Well, what I'm saying is that everything is physical that we can detect. So, if we can detect it, it must be physical by
2: virtue of the fact that we can detect it. For And that would apply to a UFO? Absolutely. Okay. Now, if, as often as happened, I see the planet Venus, say, under unusual conditions. And it seems to me to be moving. And I say, that's a UFO. Now that certainly exists. I do not deny the physical existence of the planet Venus. But what I may perceive when I look at Venus may be something quite beyond what is there in front of my eyes. And it's in that gap between the object perceived and the perception that I see the UFO. That is absolutely
3: fabulous. This is just why I love having you on the show, David, because you come up with such interesting ways to look at the subject and and this brings us back to the start where I said, well maybe what we're looking at is some combination. Maybe there are physical or I should say material objects, things that we would think of as some sort of, you know, metal or plastic or something we can build things from that we can see and touch and feel.
1: Yeah, let's do our break here, guys. More to come with David, Gene and Randall, you're in
4: the paracast. Hello, Paracast people. I'm Greg Carlwood, the host of the Higher Side Chats podcast, an uninterrupted and action-packed interview-based show where I talk to some of the brightest minds for our troubled times about all things paranormal, occult, esoteric, and conspiratorial. After ten years, we've heard it all. Alien moon bases, archons, hollow earth, technocratic and biomedical agendas, magic, mind control, and Lovecraftian monsters. Oh my. Usually the first hour of the show is free and the second hour is for members who sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at $8 a month. But praise be, we're giving Paracast listeners two free weeks of plus when you use the all caps coupon code PARACAST. Go to TheHigherSideChats.com, sign up with the code PARACAST, and dive into the nearly never-ending archive of great interviews I've been lucky enough to get over the years, from David Politis to David Icke, and many, many guests not named David. Check it out. You're going to love it. All right, Gene, was that good? Can we use that one?
5: If you or
6: a loved one is a survivor of abuse by Boy Scouts of America representatives as far back as the 1970s, we urge you to speak up. We'll stand with you and get you the help and financial compensation you deserve. A jury in Portland, for example, awarded $18.5 million in punitive damages in one Boy Scout sexual abuse case. The Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy, and funds have been set aside to compensate those injured. Time is limited, and so are the funds. Call today. Don't wait. For free information on how to file your claim, call all Survivors Advocates right now. We have a long track record in helping our clients get the legal justice and compensation they deserve. Please, we are ready to help you. Call today.
2: 800-364-2984. 800-364-2984. 364 2984 That's 800-364-2984.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: So between our breaks, Randall was getting his Mr. Rogers shirt on. Is that correct, sir?
3: That is Correct, Or at least that's what it has been referred to. But that's because I'm up here in Calgary, Alberta, where it is currently uh, minus 12 degrees. That's centigrade in Fahrenheit. That would be, I guess, 11, something like that. It's below freezing, in other words. So it's gotten a little chilly here in my little miniature studio. Well, right here, it's. In Mesa, Arizona,
1: it's 85 degrees. In North Carolina, David Halperin, what's the temperature?
2: Somewhere around 55. It was pretty nippy when I got up this morning, but now it seems to be quite pleasant.
1: Okay, so what we're doing here, and we'll get to the meat of this conversation in a moment, was to go over... David's particular belief about UFOs being a psychological phenomenon. But at one time in the past, you were in the E.T. camp, correct? Absolutely. Where was the line of demarcation? Where did
2: it change for you? Where did it change? Okay. I'm going to move back a little bit and talk about... Okay. That I became a UFO believer, through a sudden conversion. When I was 12 going on 13, and I read Grey Barkers, they knew too much about flying saucers, which, for reasons that we might want to talk about more, powerfully appealed to my sense of reality and gave me the conviction that what Barker was describing, fantastic though it was, was real. And so I became a ufologist, and since there was no clear alternative to an ET explanation of where the UFOs were coming from, I accepted that. Now, I guess when I was about 17, and I was about to go off to college, I lost the belief, not that UFOs were real and extraterrestrial, but that there was any way we could know anything about them. And therefore, it was better to spend my time researching more promising areas. Very, very gradually, my belief faded. There wasn't any one morning when I woke up and said, boy, now I know we're not being visited from outer space. But just, it, it, it just lost its reality for me. Then when I was 22, I, through a remarkable coincidence, I met Jacques Vallée. And Valet's Passport to Begonia, which had been recently published, opened for me a way that I could take UFOs seriously without clinging to E.T. And under that influence, I reread a book that I had read years before, Carl Jung's Flying Saucers, which I could not make much sense out of, and I realized that this was the path that I wanted to take, that UFOs were important. UFOs did have a reality, just not the kind that I'd always imagined.
3: Right and this brings us back to where we were before the last break that what we're talking about is two different kinds of realities one being very subjective and another being very objective so the objective being the materials that we see the world is made out of and the physical phenomena that's in it such as lights and pressure waves and so on and then there's the subjective the what we think about it, how our worldview is formed from those experiences.
2: Yes, yes. And I remember when we talked about this last time, Randall, you raised the question, maybe it is both. As Jung said, maybe real objects can be the stimuli for psychic projections. And I cannot rule that out. But I find, let's say, small utility in supposing that UFOs have a physical existence. What do you mean by small utility? Um, I'm not clear on that. That is that I do not understand UFOs. I do not understand the world any better when I assume that. Whereas I think I do understand them better when I see them as psychic projections.
3: Oh, okay. So that's kind of interesting. So you're looking at it from a very personal point of view of how it affects you personally on your level, whereas, say, someone like myself, who who I, I think that probably the best explanation from my perspective is that we are dealing with some sort of interstellar travelers and that there is a material reality. And so... Compared to someone who doesn't believe that, knowing, having a certainty that the universe does have other life in it and that we're just a very small part of a much larger picture is of great significance to me and and to many of the experiencers we've had. So, this, this is really interesting that from your perspective, that part doesn't matter so much, it's how it affects your personal view
2: of the world that matters. Or how it affects the experiencers. Because I do not question that the people who experience UFOs have experienced something. But I think that to ask what is that something, we need to look at the experiencers themselves and not at the external stimulus well, that would also say
1: that since this is a subjective experience, everyone will experience it differently or or what?
2: Yeah, I think so. And this is why one of the facets of the phenomenon that most puzzles me is the mu- is the jointly witnessed UFO. Where there does seem to be some agreement, and I'm not sure how to explain that.
3: Well, I guess maybe if we go with Jung, like you're you're a fan of Jung, and uh, it's it's a, this is a really interesting idea that he poses, in in that there is some sort of a a collective unconscious, and that there's this idea of archetypes, and that perhaps this Mandela, this UFO, this disc. Is something that we all share on a subconscious level. Let's
1: continue with this discussion, our next segment. We're talking with David Halperin and Gene and Randall. You're in. The Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
10: MSA Radio News with Dan Naraki. The United States has reported nearly 200,000 new coronavirus cases in a single day. About 195,000 new cases were reported on Friday, a new single day high. That pushed the seven day average of new cases to over 166,000. The U.S. has now passed 12 million total coronavirus cases since the beginning of the pandemic. There is some good news in the fight against COVID tonight, as an experimental treatment for COVID-19 has gained emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. The antibody treatment, developed by Regeneron, is authorized for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults. The treatment has been praised by President Trump and was one of the therapeutics that he received while he was hospitalized after contracting the virus back in October. Earlier this month, emergency authorization was also given to a similar drug being developed by drug maker Eli Lilly. This is USA Radio News. A judge in Pennsylvania has dismissed a lawsuit from the Trump campaign that sought to stop the state from certifying its election results. The president's lawyers had argued that different counties took different steps to let voters know about issues with their mail-in ballots, therefore violating the guarantee of equal protection under the law. In a statement, the president's legal team said they would appeal the district court's decision all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. And if you're unsure about preparing your turkey to top your Thanksgiving table, Tim Berg tells us where to find all the answers from the USA Radio News Phoenix Bureau.
3: Just ahead of Thanksgiving, the Butterball Turkey line is ready to help. The line has been around since the 1980s and the most common question they get is how long it takes to defrost a turkey which the professionals say is 24 hours for every five pounds and to thaw it in the fridge anyone planning to cook a turkey who has questions can call the hotline at 1-800-288-8372 from the usa radio news phoenix bureau
10: i'm tim Berg. this is usa radio news
12: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal
1: radio. As we get a little further into this theory of David's, we want to see how that relates to a series of blogs he wrote after seeing the James Fox
3: UFO documentary, The Phenomenon. Let's continue, Randall. Right. So just before the break there, David, we were talking about uh, how we might explain the similarity of experiences between multiple witnesses in a multiple witness sighting, that it might be explained by looking at it the way that Carl Jung does with a collective unconscious and the idea of uh, archetypes.
2: I'm wondering if we can... Sharpen this discussion by taking a specific case, and that is the Father Gill sighting, or the sightings of June 26th and 27th, 1959, which Fox devotes a few minutes to in his documentary, and which I talked about in my blog post on the documentary, as well as in my book, Intimate Alien. Shall we talk about that? Absolutely, yes. And Intimate
3: Alien is out in Amazon right now. People can get it there. Uh, It's a very recent book. And by all means, let's talk about the Father Gill case. Okay,
2: we really have two key sightings. One on a Friday evening, June 26, 1959, and the next on Saturday evening, June 27th. The sightings took place on the southeastern coast of Papua New Guinea at a mission at a place called Boyanai where Father Gill was the spiritual leader. He was a young Anglican priest. He was the spiritual leader to a congregation of Papuans who were highly educated, strong-minded men and women who, at least according to Gill, didn't care too much for being led by a European priest who at the same time seemed to have strong affections for Gil. On that evening of June 26th, which, given that this was the southern hemisphere, was the depth of winter, Gil spotted what seemed to be a disk or approaching the mission building. Eventually, a crowd of 38 people gathered, and they... Watched this disk and they saw emerge from the disk four men who walked on top of the disk rather like sailors on the decks of their ships. Gill called the men and remarked at one point, No doubt they are human. At the same time, perhaps contradicting that, He described them as being self-luminous. He said they were glowing. And in a later interview, he said, no doubt they were angels. There were four of them, seemed to be performing some sort of operation on the deck of the ship. And then the ship disappeared in the clouds. Gill seems to have gathered the witnesses into a room. They made sketches of what they had seen, which seemed to be quite similar, sketches of a disc with men on top of it, and something like 25 of the 38 who had gathered signed their names saying, yes, I saw this, which is itself remarkable, but also needs to be noted that 13 did not sign. And we have to explain why they did not sign. Now, what were these people looking at? Martin Kottmeyer, who is a fairly prominent UFO skeptic, has analyzed a diagram that Gill did of the position of the UFO, as well as three auxiliary UFOs that appeared later that evening, and found that they corresponded The large one to the planet Jupiter and the smaller ones to the planet Saturn and the stars Spica and Rigel Cantaurus. And this combined with the fact that they tended to approach as the clouds cleared and disappear as the clouds gathered suggests that what these people were looking at were the heavenly bodies. But if that's what they were looking at, it is not what they saw. What they saw was flying discs, and on one of them, four men walking about. Now, how are we to make sense of that? In Fox's documentary, The Phenomenon, he devotes, as I said, a few minutes to the sighting, and he does play a video of Father Gill describing what he's experienced. But then the video stops for a few seconds, and the narrator says, Gill saw small men moving around on the disc. Now, Gill never said the men were small. Fox is introducing that idea in order to harmonize the sighting with the standard depiction of the UFO pilots as little men. Never little green men, but little men. But I think we have to concentrate on what Gill, in fact, saw. And according to him, they were human beings, except they glowed and led him to think they were angels. So it looks to me like if we are interpreting the vision, and I'm going to call it a vision rather than a sighting, we have to put it in a different category from the conventional ufological category that Fox wants to force it into. It seems to me we need to put it into a religious category. I suggested a parallel with the biblical story of Abraham And his three visitors. Most of us are familiar with this case. And and
3: I hear what you're saying, but I'm kind of hearing you doing maybe the same thing. You're you're taking certain elements and, and picking it out of the sighting and wanting to put it into sort of your particular worldview and perspective of what happened. Maybe as much as the people there were, except the people who were there actually saw it and said it was large enough that they could see people standing on top, that it approached them and it only appeared to be about 100 meters up in the air. I mean, if you are down there on a regular basis and you look up in the sky, you you know the difference between planets and stars and some kind of craft hanging in the sky. Uh, a few hundred meters away, I don't think you can mistake it that badly with your perception that you're, you're going to start to conflate ideas of you know, planets from whatever else that they saw. But there's the idea here that they they thought that maybe what they were seeing was something religious. And that makes perfect sense in the context that they were in a religious retreat, you know, you know in a mission where they were
2: believing in angels. How else could they explain it? well we could eh, the, the, the papuans had some explanatory models for it the indigenous traditions spoke of human-like sky beings who sometimes took on full human form and descended to earth to visit the people down here papua new guinea was the home of the cargo cults which were devoted to trying to get the sky beings to come down and deliver plentiful cargo to their children on Earth the way the American and Japanese airmen did during World War II. One Australian professor, many years later, remembered hearing from a Papuan University student that I saw the heavens open and angels in white clothing. I saw it with my own eyes, which comes out sounding rather like the gill sighting minus the mechanical equipment.
1: Let's break it here, guys. More to come with David, Gene, and Randall Green.
3: The Paracast.
1: Once again, theParacast.plus. Prices are just dollar fifty a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
13: We've all seen and perhaps use the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Have you noticed how it dries your skin? And as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective. GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam meeting or exceeding all requirements set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Come to GCNteam.com, keyword antibacterial, or call 877-878-4203.
15: you might be eligible for a CGM with little or no cost to you. Call U.S. Medical Supply today for a free benefits check. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill Medicare or your insurance directly. Call now and say goodbye to finger pricks.
4: 800-880-1896. 800-880-1896. 800-880-1896. That's 800-880-1896.
16: Robert Hastings,
12: author of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So, we have David Halpern. We're talking about the 1959 Father Gill sighting, which is one of the pieces of evidence included in James Fox's UFO documentary. The phenomenon. Now remember, Fox is a movie maker, not a UFO investigator. David is now explaining why it's not necessarily a visitation by ET, but something else. Go ahead.
2: If we try to say that this is one among multiple cases of a close up UFO sighting, then we are flummoxed by why the pilots seem to be so different from the way UFO occupants are regularly described. So I would try to look at it, what I see it as, is a way of the European priest and his Papuan congregation coming together by the formation of a shared vision, drawing on both their traditions. And this need for a shared vision was so powerful that it overruled the plain evidence of their senses, which as Randall says, you would expect that they've seen these heavenly bodies every night. Why this night suddenly do they take on such an extraordinary aspect And I would add, how do they seem to see them in the same way? I posit some sort of communication among them. But I am not wholly comfortable with that. And here is where I see the real UFO mystery, not in the sky, but among human beings. That's perfectly fair enough. I mean, even if we are talking
3: about an actual material craft with some other entities or beings on it, that doesn't change what you're just saying about the impact of the experience on the witnesses. It doesn't change it at all. Yeah. And and I think that side of it is is really quite fascinating whether we're dealing with uh, material UFOs or not. And by the way, we all know there has been plenty of mistaken misidentifications of planets as being UFOs. So this isn't all that far-fetched. But one thing I did I did find in James Fox's film, The Phenomenon, is that there was a short clip of an interview with Father Gill. And in this clip, I was expecting to see, you know, maybe some old person who didn't seem very adept at much and was just out there doing his missionary work and would not have been able to really identify what, what this was, even, you know, in it, but he seemed really quite with it. He did not seem in any way to be impaired in his judgment about what was going on. And,
2: and I thought that gave the case some credibility then and there. I mean, that is one thing that Fox, it seems to me, demonstrated with the phenomenon which is that UFO witnesses are not in some way deficient, that you are dealing with extremely intelligent, often very impressive people who have encountered something they cannot identify. So what Uh, would
3: this particular sighting sort of add up to in your mind then, too? I mean, we, we do have all of this sort of mystical interpretation going on around it, do, do you think that perhaps if there were, and just for the sake of this argument, if we assume maybe they there were real entities on board a real craft, that they were intentionally trying to evoke this uh, mystical sense within
2: the viewers, it that was, there was some purpose? I'm trying to formulate my answer. It's very hard for me to believe such a thing, which is notably... Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Assume that they're visitors from some other world. Why would they be interested in bonding an Australian Anglican priest with his nationalist and somewhat disgruntled congregants? Why would that be important to them? But if we take it all as a projection of the witnesses onto two planets and two stars that seem to be drawing nearer or moving away as the clouds thicken or disperse, then I can understand the motives well. What I do not understand as well as I want to is the mechanism by which the vision is created.
1: Remember here, if these were truly visitors from another planet, hundreds or thousands of years ahead of us, we don't have to assume what kind of technology could they be using, what kind of method, because being so far advanced, even our sci-fi writers would have difficulty figuring that out. The other thing here, too, is... How can we presume to understand alien motivations, a race from another world, they come here and they may be engaged in some kind of psychological games to test humans and see how they react to different scenarios. We don't have to assume that it's self-created.
2: And they would do this in 1959, more than, well, more, more than 60 years ago, and... Then, never do anything quite like it again well,
3: well I, they seem to do this back in biblical times too when during exodus, the you know God went before them in a in a pillar of fire in the sky and led them you know to the the red Sea you know the whole mythology right sure. you 're a professor, and this so it seems to me that it hasn't been just you know recently that these things have been. Would, is it fair to say interfering in our society, breaking the uh, the commandment?
2: <laughs> but, but how much more so? How much more plausible is it to see the miracle at the Red Sea as a legendary construction by Israelites who longed for some demonstration of the power of their unique God, a God who not only is... Not cosmic in scope, but seems very narrow and national. Surely such a God is a better better understood as a projection of his worshippers than as a benevolently interfering extraterrestrial, benevolent unless you happen to be Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Take perhaps an even, Clearer, uh, an even more striking case, and that is the vision in the first chapter of Ezekiel of the living creatures, the wheels. Now, I do not understand that vision, and I'm prepared to say that vision is a UFO, not meaning a spaceship, but meaning something unknown, something emerging from Ezekiel's unconscious that he cannot identify. And then it goes on to speak in the language of Ezekiel's God, son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, the rebellious house that have rebelled against me, they and their fathers down to this very day and go on and on in ways that's almost to me incomprehensible for extraterrestrial visitors, but thoroughly comprehensible as the projection of a lonely Jewish exile in Babylonia trying to make some sense of the calamity that's overcome his country, in addition to which he's experienced something that, to me, comes from his unconscious. Possibly. I, I, he's, there's... Uh, the idea that people
3: have throughout the ages uh, also taken certain kinds of herbs and substances that have uh, contributed to their mystical experiences. Maybe it was something like that, or maybe it really was some kind of a, a, a contraption that was like wheels within wheels like a gyroscope and that the faces around the edges were portals that these creatures were looking through and that the legs that were like pillars with hooves were landing struts i mean we could look at it both ways
1: you know what let's have david's answer our next segment i should mention about the phenomenon we're giving away free coupon codes which include the three hours of extras for the phenomenon directed by James Fox. If you sign up for a long term subscription to the Paracast Plus, to sign up, go to the Paracast.plus. That's the theparacast.plus. More to come with David Halpern, Gene Steinberg, J. Randall Murphy. You're in The
3: Paracast. <laughs>
17: Your life
0: with
12: extendivite really works. Here are some reviews from Amazon.com. John Hess, five out of five stars. Awesome. Probably my only review, but at age 40, I was getting bad heart throb and left arm pain, mainly before bed. I even stopped smoking and drinking sodas for a month, and that didn't work. After one day of taking extendivite, it was gone and hasn't returned in three years. I've ordered Extendivite 13 times, so Amazon just said. Juliet Hordick. I've ordered this product before in liquid form. It is fantastic. My whole family's been on it. To order, call one 928 That's one 877 928 Or visit our website at heartdrop.com. Extend your life with
17: Extendover.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So Randall and David have been having a fascinating discussion. I won't say necessarily a debate, but a discussion about the theory of a collective unconscious as an explanation for ufos specifically the father william gill case from 1959 and its implications in other cases and how even some going back to biblical days may have been involved david you want to answer randall's comment Uh,
3: let's hear it again well we were talking about two possibilities and one was that what was seen in the, uh, if we're to take the experience of Ezekiel as being a genuine experience by a genuine person who actually lived, to be either uh, a product of his imagination, perhaps uh, accentuated, maybe by some sort of hallucinogenic of the day, or that maybe he actually really did just see something that uh, resembled wheels within wheels, like a gyroscope that had faces around the edges, and those could be interpreted as interpreted as portals with beings looking out, and the and the the legs that were like pillars could be interpreted as landing gear. Maybe I should just go all the way to the, to the core of this question. Do you, do you believe in any reality of a deity that is a manifestation and a separate entity from us as human beings on this world? Or is it all just this sort of inner projection of our own psyche?
2: I do not believe in any God as conventionally. Envisioned. Please elaborate.
3: This is fascinating. And by and by, the way, Gene is absolutely right. Like you and I are just having a fascinating discussion where we're doing, you know, sort of a bit of point counterpoint, bringing in different ideas. But I'm just having a wonderful time with it, and I hope you are too.
2: Oh, I am. I am. The, you are just an incredibly stimulating. Both of you are incredibly stimulating conversation partners, and I think we all we all can, I think can agree on one thing: we don't have the answers. Yeah, that's the truth. No I mean, doubt about I, that. I have a way, a, a direction in which I look for the answers, but I find a lot of mysteries en route in that. Now why do i not believe in god in any conventional sense because i do not see any evidence in the world around me in the history i read that there is any guiding power and it seems to me that if we are to conceive a god in any way like the the judeo-christian islamic god it would have to be something that guides that controls the events uh, uh, of history, you you know, I mean, it's the old question going back to Job, why do the righteous suffer? And the question is only an intellectual question. If there is a just God, delete the just God and you still have the question, but it becomes not an intellectual topic for discourse, but rather an anguished cry of the human soul. That in a nutshell, we can come back to that, that in a nutshell is the God I don't believe. Now what God do I believe in? Well, this is all very tentative, but it seems to me that Freud developed, I won't say he innovated, but he developed the idea that we all have an unconscious that controls far more of our conscious thought and behavior than we're willing to admit. Jung took that a step further, and I am willing to go with Jung. I think Freud is often very helpful, but I would go with Jung that there is an addition to the individual unconscious, a collective unconscious that we share as a species and perhaps more specifically as a culture. Now, is it conceivable that there is a third unconscious that incorporates and encompasses The Jungian unconscious, the way the Jungian unconscious incorporates and embraces the Freudian unconscious, perhaps call it a cosmic unconscious, which is in its own way very conscious in that it thinks. Now, if there is that greater unconscious, what is the distinction between that and God, I am not sure.
3: Well, how about the idea that, and and this is something I get into with religious and non-religious people. Personally, I'm I'm non-religious. So, I tend to look at gods as being something that has been deified. So, whether that's a, a material object, like some sort of an idol, or it's an idea, either way, once it goes through this process of deification, then it becomes a God to the person or group that has deified it. Uh, so, in other words, even if there is, let's say, a universe maker, which sort of is our, like what you, I would assume to be what you mean by sort of our conventional God. Yes. Even if there is a universe maker, my
2: question is, well, why should we deify a universe maker? I think the answer to that question has to be that there is something more than the object that we deify. There is something in us that we intuitively recognize as superhuman, us but more than us, that we project onto the idol or onto the the watchmaker as the deists used to envision, the creator, or onto the sacred object, that the power comes from within us. So that I think your question is an excellent one, and my answer would be projection. And it comes down to the same thing with the UFO. Yeah,
3: in a lot of cases, I mean, this is what a lot of people say, too, is that ufology has a lot of parallels with religion in that we look to the aliens to solve many of our, what we believe are our most serious personal
2: problems and crises. I think it has a great deal more uh, to do with religion. I mean, that I would take that as my fundamental premise, that the UFO is a religious phenomenon, that a UFO encounter is a bona fide religious experience, and by bona fide, I mean an encounter with something unknown within us, albeit projected onto the outside. Okay, but
3: then it seems to me, though, we do need to differentiate, to some extent, this idea of the non-religious from the religious. Because I don't consider myself to be religious in any way, shape, or form. So, when we see something like a UFO through the eyes of Rael, if you you know who the the Raelians are, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, of course, that's a religious Interpretation. They have deified real. They have de- They have deified the UFO. I might say, well, if that UFO was real, the one that he went into and the alien that he talked to, I'd just say, well, they're just other beings that live on other planets who have some kind of technology that is greater than than ours. But why would that give me cause to kneel down and worship it?
2: I would agree with you. That's why I look for something inside ourselves that evokes that sense, and I'll use the Jungian word, of the numinous, that there is some power in this that we cannot explain, but can only encounter. Well, that kind of brings us back to this idea that you touched on
3: before where you you, uh, alluded to the cargo cults. You know, their deification of aircraft was just based on their lack of knowledge about
2: what it really was. Yeah, there it's really pretty simple.
3: So why shouldn't it be sort of the same thing, but just projected further into the future where we're just dealing with something that we don't understand yet, but might well be within our grasp at some point in the future?
2: Let me see if I understand your question. why, Why not say that when we see a UFO... We are confronted with something not currently within our grasp, but at least theoretically subject to scientific investigation. Did I understand you correctly? Sure. that's a, that, I,
3: I would say that's a pretty much one to one interpretation. Yeah.
1: Let's have you do your answer in the next segment. We're running okay. over time. More to come with David, Gene, and Randall. You're in
3: the Paracast. <laughs>
1: To learn more about
18: Paracas Plus, it's not over. Sadly, our nation is going through tough times again, with no end in sight, and nobody knows what might happen next year. That's why it's a good idea to plan ahead so you aren't caught off guard. Nothing's more important than having enough food to eat, and we're here to help. We're My Patriot Supply, America's leading emergency preparedness company. We provide long term emergency food that lasts up to 25 years in storage. When grocery stores run empty or disasters strike, our foods will be there when you need it most. Act now and secure at least a four-week emergency food kit full of tasty meals that provide 2,000 calories a day. We have dozens of emergency food storage kits to choose from. When the government tells you not to go out, you can have the peace of mind that comes from being prepared. When you order from MyPatriotSupply.com, your food will arrive discreetly at your doorstep in no time. Prepare today. Time is short. MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com.
19: Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to teamgeday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's teamgeday.com with Longevity. teamgeday.com Warning, if you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to pay it all back, because you don't.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Fascinating back and forth here about the unconscious origins possibly of UFOs. And after Randall's comment, David had a response. Go ahead.
3: We were talking a bit about cargo
2: cults, and yeah, uh, where yeah, Okay, you, now I now, yeah, I'm right. now I'm back with us. Now I'm back with us. It's really an interesting point because, from the point of view of the Papuans, there would be no way to know. Did you imagine? Well, I guess you could say that the cargo landed. The cargo was discharged. It was disgorged, it was tangible. Whether these Americans shared it with you or not, you could see them eating it, that it acted entirely according to what you would normally expect of physical reality. But the only way to absolutely show that that is true is from outside the culture where we know what cargo was. And we know what the airplanes were. So that's what I would say about the cargo cults. Now, about the UFOs, I do not see that there's anything in the physical reality of our world that becomes more explicable if you say the UFOs are there. I mean, no one has gotten anything that might be a portion of a UFO that, when analyzed, turns out to be anything other than mundane. Now, well, back in 2017, when Ralph Blumenthal was writing, they wrote the initial articles for the New York Times that revealed the Navy UFO videos, uh, he appeared on MSNBC and said that alloys had been retrieved, which were analyzed and shown to be of otherworldly origin, or at least not explicable as standard earthly metals. But that was the last we ever heard of them.
1: You see, that's also very interesting here. Regardless of what you think about UFOs, we hear about materials allegedly recovered in connection with the sighting, and we never hear anything more about them that's significant. We'll go back, for example, to Roger Lear, Dr. Roger Lear, a Foot surgeon, as a matter of fact, he collected so-called artifacts that people possibly had implanted in them from UFO abductions. And unfortunately, none of them so far have turned out to be anything unusual or weird. But you see, it also gets back, if we're going to mention the coverage by The Times, they're talking about the tic-tac UFOs. Yeah. And the question would be then... If it's all in their head, what were these pilots seeing and what did they photograph and what did they track on radar?
2: Okay, now I'm going to say something that I have never been able to get clear and maybe you can help me get it clear. I have never been able to get it clear to what extent the pilots claimed to have seen something with their own eyes as opposed to the cameras. I know David Fraver said that he saw some object, but apart from Fravor, has anyone else made that claim?
3: Yes. Uh, According to Fravor, he and the person with him in his aircraft, as well as, as the people in the other aircraft that were with him on the mission also saw
2: it. And so that's definitely more than one person. Did we have any independent attestation that is uh, other than Fravor's word for it? Uh,
3: I have. It's been difficult to find them. I've run across them to to know whether or not they're perfectly accurate or not. I'd have to say, well, we'd need to look it up and verify it. But from everything I've understood and given Fravor's. Uh, credibility, I, I think it's pretty safe to say. I mean, he was the the squadron commander, so he ought to know,
2: right? Okay. okay, but look, I've been very much influenced by Mick West on this, that West did a series of videos in which he tries to explain, I think that the tic-tac is, is a weather balloon,
3: Oh, um, yes, yes, Mick West's definitely yes. I in fact, I am posted those on the Paracast community forums not long ago, and I think he makes some really good points, but what we have to to, to realize there is that the pictures that were taken, those videos are not the same craft that were seen visually by Fravor and his people, so we have this this confusion of well what was actually seen and what was actually photographed. And personally, I don't put much stock in the videos. Uh, I don't, I, I I don't see anything really that unusual about them. Not only that, what you were saying about Mick West, he provides a pretty convincing explanation for at least a GoFast video by way of trigonometry. I mean, it's just to me, it's obvious. It's not a UFO. And by UFO, I mean, some sort of alien craft.
2: And West put up a a post in which he located, I think, something on the web from Fravor, in which Fravor brags about having scared a group of campers for entertainment by swooping down close to them so as to appear like a UFO.
3: So That's interesting. Well, I've heard of those Top Gun pilots doing that uh, in the past. They – yeah – they watch the movie with Tom Cruise,
1: Top Gun, too often.
2: So I, I think if the case rests on Fravor's word, it's uh, to me, it's fairly shaky.
3: Well, I I don't get that from him at all. I, I really don't think he's making it up. I don't mm-hmm. No, I'd say he's probably the most reliable, believable witness I've ever seen uh, in a UFO case. So, but what the the object was is still in question. We are not entirely sure. And there are other possible explanations for it. So I kind of go with a rule of thumb. Well, if we could explain it through our own technology in some way, shape, or form, even if it seems a little bit advanced and not generally known to the public, like a combination of radar spoofing and 3D... Uh, projecting with, whether it's particle devices like lasers or whatever, that it could be an advanced countermeasures device, something like that, that they just can't tell us about and maybe even didn't know themselves. And there are a number of kind of curious things about that whole encounter that make me think that that's more likely than an alien craft. You know, I want to just mention something here before we go to a response from David. There's
1: a disconnect here. So we have the Senate Intelligence Committee being interested. We have Senator Marco Rubio, who may or may not be head of that committee come 2021, depending on those two runoff elections in Georgia. It's very complicated for those of you who are listening from other countries. Don't ask me to explain anything. Except we have a Pentagon UAP task force looking, quote unquote, into items that may present A possible threat to national security. And obviously, they're taking the matter seriously. But if we have something that's just a mental projection or a balloon or something conventional, why are they taking it seriously? I don't see that. More to come with David, Gene, and Randall. You're in. The Paracast.
16: Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com.
10: USA Radio News with Dan Naraki. The United States has reported nearly 200,000 new coronavirus cases in a single day. About 195,000 new cases were reported on Friday, a new single-day high. That pushed the seven-day average of new cases to over 166,000. The U.S. has now passed 12 million total coronavirus cases since the beginning of the pandemic. There is some good news in the fight against COVID tonight, as an experimental treatment for COVID-19 has gained emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. The antibody treatment developed by Regeneron is authorized for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults. The treatment has been praised by President Trump and was one of the therapeutics that he received while he was hospitalized after contracting the virus back in October. Earlier this month, emergency authorization was also given to a similar drug being developed by drug maker Eli Lilly. This is USA Radio News. As coronavirus cases have been rising across the country, there is hope at recent announcements about two upcoming vaccines. And with that, could door-to-door vaccinations become a thing?
7: Pfizer and BioNTech have both submitted a request to the FDA for their COVID-19 vaccine to be granted emergency use authorization. Pfizer has said their two-shot vaccine is 95% effective. That company is on track to produce 50 million doses by the end of 2020 and 1.3 billion doses in 2021. BioNTech CEO Ewer Sahin says filing for emergency use authorization in the U.S. is a critical step in making their vaccine candidate available to the global population as quickly as possible. The rush to market can be concerning for consumers as the nation faces another potential lockdown, meaning vaccines will then be distributed in closely controlled quarters or door-to-door in home, leaving those normally not at risk now exposed to the virus. From the Texas USA Radio News Bureau,
10: I'm Val Dior. This is USA Radio News.
15: Today, many of us are paying attention to our health and what we eat plays an important role. But so often the water we drink is a mere afterthought when it should be a primary part of our daily nutrition. Real water would like to change how you think about the water you drink and how it can play an important role in helping your body restore balance and reach its full potential. The key benefits of every bottle of real water are stabilized negative ions, balanced pH, detoxification, and it hydrates you like never before. And yes, it tastes great. Real water is beyond alkalinity and due to its proprietary process Called E2 Technology, it's the only drinking water on the market that can maintain a stable negative ionization, which means real science in every bottle. Order your real water today and take advantage of special pricing for this audience only by calling 1 855 REALWTR or visiting buyrealwaternow.com. That's 1 855 REALWTR or buyrealwaternow.com. Order now 1 855 REALWTR or buyrealwaternow.com
16: this is Jacques Vallée you're listening to the Paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio
1: David Halpern is joining us and we're talking now about the recent interest in UFOs generated by the fact that the government admits it's investigating it. There's a committee now that will supposedly report after six months to the status of what they've done. And we have the tic tac UFOs. And it comes down to this David Halpern dealing with collective unconscious is something way out of the Pentagon's radar. So is is it possible it is what you say it is? Maybe there's a conventional explanation for the Tic Tac UFO photo, but because it's not in their radar, they're taking it seriously as possibly a physical phenomenon to be investigated.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think there is a gut intuitive sense that there's something important about the UFO. And I will reveal, you know, my full uh, hand of cards here that I think that this summer, this dreadful summer of 2020, has been a time when UFOs have taken particular importance, because we are experiencing a genuine alien invasion, except not, of course, UFO, but COVID. Right. Yes, and last time you were on the show,
3: this was really interesting too. I, I posed the question: Well, if that's the case, and we have all of this extra uh, psychic energy going on around uh, death and dying, shouldn't there be more UFO sightings? And
2: guess what? There are. I mean, I know uh, Bryce Zabel, who uh, who writes uh, blog posts on this, and whose approach is totally different from mine, has called 2020 the summer of the saucers. And he sees this as a precursor of uh, disclosure. And the second part I, of course, disagree with him about, but the first part I do agree with him. I think there is something going on with the UFO now that I think is rooted in this sense of alien menace that we all experience
1: mentioned to our listeners by the way bryce abel has been an occasional presence on the powercast he's a former cnn correspondent who became a film and tv producer he created the ufo oriented sci-fi show in the 90s called Dark Skies and maintains a pretty healthy interest in the subject. He's also the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure with Richard Dolan. And that's about the scenario that it is disclosed that UFOs are alien visitors. And what's going to happen to our society after that? That's what the book is about. Go ahead, David.
2: Yes. And as a religious studies professor, I would say that Reveals a religious dimension of it, AD after disclosure. And in one of his posts, he says that it contrasts with BC uh, before confirmation.
1: Well, that does, of course, have a religious connection, yes. Now, in your lengthy review in your blog about the movie The Phenomenon, you mentioned a couple other cases. And maybe we could get into those in our waning moments here to get a sense further about where you stand the one in zimbabwe of course is something that he dealt with at great length in the movie towards the latter part of it maybe yes. go into that one
2: well i can tell you i find it absolutely fascinating in many ways baffling uh, and if you want to watch a video of an impressive ufo witness then watch salma siddick who was interviewed by Martin Willis on his podcast UFO back in 2017. And you're just blown away with her intelligence, her articulateness, and her conviction that something powerful and transformative happened to some 60 kids at the Ariel School near Harare, Zimbabwe in, uh, on September 16th, 1994, And I completely share her conviction that something powerful happened. I don't think it is what they thought it was. I don't think that the things that they saw had any tangible existence. And yet, as I think a creation of the students at the school, akin to the joint creation of Father Gill's manned disks, I think there is something real happening. I would say that I think it's probably rooted in the tensions of what was going on in Zimbabwe at the time, which I am trying to get clearer on. I find myself at a great disadvantage, since I do not know much about the history and culture of Zimbabwe, beyond what I guess all of us know from reading the newspapers, but it does seem to me clear that there was some considerable tension at the school at the time, and I think the shared vision was a way of dealing with it and perhaps unifying the students at the school i do not know if you want me to say anything more about that
3: well i think it's interesting a super interesting case like you say it's it's the case itself is absolutely fascinating what we're dealing with when it happened were mainly children later on it, there was one of the teachers did finally admit that they had seen it too, and believed the children because she had seen these things as well, so it wasn't just children,
2: but okay, in some which of case these, I'm mistaken,
3: yeah, and but some of these children had gotten so close to the the entity or being. That they could see these black eyes and they started to get visions within their mind like almost a telepathic sort of communication about taking better care of the world. And that if humanity doesn't do a better job of taking care of the world, it is going to really run into a lot of problems in the future. I think that these ideas and this sort of an experience
2: really does fit into your your paradigm. I mean, I don't think it will work for the assumption that we're dealing with extraterrestrial visitors. Since if we're going to posit extraterrestrial visitors who want to warn humanity about the devastating consequences of our hyper-technology, I really would not do so with a group of middle school-aged kids at a school very far removed from the centers of world power. I would, as the conventional phrase goes, land on the White House lawn and announce to the people there that they must take better care of the earth. But if we... Yeah,
3: you make such an excellent point there. And it's one of the same ones I've been making for years, too. It's like, and Gene as well. I mean, why is it always you know these mystery mysterious backwoods encounters with people who hold really no position or sway in terms of world
2: affairs that get told these messages after i posted the third part of my review of uh uh, of the phenomenon, a reader named Lawrence put, up an, put in an extremely interesting comment in which he said that, uh, interviewed on Mysterious Universe, uh, James Fox said that the, the beings whom the children saw modeled their actions, their movements on the children which makes good sense if they're somehow projections of the children, not such good sense if they're interplanetary visitors. And then my mind skitters back to William Booth Gill on Saturday night, June 27th, which I've not spoken about yet. He and the Papuans wave to the beings aboard, or I would say the human beings aboard the, the UFOs, and there seemed no doubt he he wrote that our movements were answered.
1: We'll be back with David Halpern yep. and Gene. And Randall, you're in the
3: Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
21: health insurance hotline today learn how this 10 minute call can help you get lower health insurance rates this is a free service to help consumers learn the laws to help them qualify for lower health insurance rates so call right now to learn more 800-670-0946 800-670-0946 call 800-670-0946 800-670-0946 hi this is james fox you're listening to the
0: paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio
1: we're here with david halperin talking about his conclusions about ufos being manifestations of a collective unconscious and mentioning two of the key sightings that were depicted in the james fox documentary the phenomenon and by the way Another guest has joined us to become part of the panel, Morgan Knudsen. Hi, Morgan.
7: Hey, how are you guys?
1: She's going to lurk as David continues the discussion, but she may have some things to say. So, David, you dovetailed back to the second part of the Father Guild case where the entities appeared to mimic their movements because that's what happened in Zimbabwe. Go ahead.
2: Yes, it seems to me a a, a remarkable parallel, especially since I see some sort of a similar function. I think that's the best word for it at at the Ariel School and at the Boyanai mission of drawing together those elements that seem to be coming apart. And I do think that the Ariel School as it was originally conceived, was coming apart in 1994. And I can I, I, I can fill that in a bit more if you'd like.
1: Yes, please. Sure. Do, please explain do to that. our listeners. I know that many will want to check your blog and we will tell them where to find it. But for those listeners who are just curious for more information now, go ahead.
2: Okay. Now, I have to qualify this by saying that what I know or think I know about the REL school is based on one or two bits of raw data in their website, plus listening to interviews with the, the, the witnesses of 1994, who are now grown one to two that I listened to were women. Well, the impression I have is this that in 1991, the school was founded. As a deliberate experiment in integration of black and white, of Christian and Muslim and Shona, one of the major native cultures, looking at the videos from the school from that are in the phenomenon, I am struck by the easy and comfortable interactions among white children, black children, this being in a country that was explicitly white supremacist only a couple of decades earlier. And from what I can gather, the school was founded as a deliberate counter to the tendency in Zimbabwe at the time for whites to found public schools as a way of keeping whites segregated from blacks. Apparently, things took a bad turn in the mid-90s. And I say apparently because this is just what I can glean from what these witnesses have said. One of them says that she was also interviewed by Martin Willis on Podcast UFO. She says that Zimbabwe was in chaos at the time, and that, perhaps a bit inconsistently, that after 1995, things started going south, and apparently the white families left. Uh, if you look at the photos from the, the website, the student body is now exclusively black. And this is what I mean about the school coming apart. And my guess is, this is my hypothesis, that the students felt that this harmonious world that had been created for them was disintegrating. And they created this shared vision as a way Of responding to it. That is really interesting.
3: Uh, I'd like to bring Morgan into this with a a couple of comments as well, because one of the things that you two both have in common, and welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you. Is that you both have a, a great amount of caring for the people who are undergoing these kinds of experiences, this disintegration. Uh, It could be a family disintegration. It could be deaths in the families. And that in both cases, we find that young people are having these paranormal experiences. Morgan, in your case, you're dealing with sort of basic, basing the presumption on that maybe there is another side, there really are these entities and children might be having these experiences or, or perhaps not. But in, in both cases, children seem to have these imaginary friends that, that seem to pop into their lives at times when they're undergoing the, these kinds of stress. Do you both, or, or am I wrong, do you both find that this is something that happens?
11: Yeah, I mean, I, I know for myself, I see this frequently uh, when I'm dealing with, with various clients and and whatnot, and I think it happens for for a couple of different reasons. You know, whether the that person has um, you know created created something um, to fill a void, or whether that void is actually being filled with something else. But we know. You know, as we go through our lives, wherever there is a void, that the universe tends to fill that up. And what I have found is that, um, you know, we, I think sometimes we take for granted the, the, the ability that we have uh to to create and manifest the the things that we need whether it be you know a person coming into our life or whether it be you know something coming from the inside out uh to to fill that void and and kids you know they're never taught that this stuff shouldn't be happening or should be happening um you know their their imaginations are really free of a lot of cumbersome beliefs that we have and um i've, I've just i found that to be a sort of a uh, overarching theme through my research,
2: David. So I would ask Morgan first of all, Morgan. I'm delighted to be on this panel with you. And I'm oh, from, you
11: too. Same here.
2: But but I would ask you the, the 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 great crux, the great problem that I've been working around is. Okay, that I can see that a lot of the uh, these UFO sightings, which I prefer to call visions, are creations, projections of the witnesses, and yet they seem to be creating or projecting much the same thing. And I'm wondering if in the kids that you've worked with, do you have, first of all, people who have the kind of vivid experience, sense of experiencing? these entities that we find in ufo sightings and do they ever share them
11: yeah i actually i have and, uh, and what tends to be interesting at least in the the haunting phenomenon is that you know, people will have, there will be multiple people in the room uh, that not only experience it once, twice, three times, but over a, a long period of time. And uh, so we get the ones that are completely consistent, but then we'll get the, the incidents where everybody will see something, but we'll see it in a different light maybe than the person next to them so for instance you know they might all see say the figure of uh you know maybe a grandfather who's passed away but they might see him at different ages and they all report seeing him but they report a different version of him so that's it's always really interesting too
2: how do you account for their seeing something that seems to be essentially the same even though with variations.
11: You know, I I don't think anybody's really come to a, a solid conclusion about it but my own my own theory about it is that uh, you know I think we interpret our world through through various filters and you know I think when we're we're all translating light and all of you know these images and these like visions i love the term visions um you know in in a different way in the same way that you know you can ask somebody you know what color are you seeing Well, you're seeing the color blue somebody else sees the color purple and i kind of wonder if it has something to do with you know not only maybe a physiological physiological reason uh, but also the, the filters emotionally that they're uh, that they're carrying as well
2: hey okay I mean, at, at Ariel, the, the children, the thing that struck me from seeing the drawings, particularly in the phenomenon, is how frightening these beings were. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they, don't, they don't seem to be comforting at all. And to me, at least, it's completely clear that they're modeled after the cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion
11: yeah and and i you know i think you're spot on with that um you know i think when we've got especially that case specifically i i think you're right on um and i have found that it's it's sort of split at least in the world of of ghosts and hauntings where a, the majority of people see something that's very positive um i think the statistics are something like it's something like 80 plus percent feel that their experience was a, a Positive thing for them.
1: Morgan Knudsen joins us with David Halpern and Gene Steinberg and J. Randall Murphy. You're in the
3: Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: So, in a sense, here we're comparing the experience of the young witnesses at the school, the middle school in Zimbabwe, with. Some of the things that Morgan Knudsen has studied in her exploration of paranormal events. Let's go on, Morgan.
11: Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I think the general mood or emotional center that we carry. I mean, we, we all know that it, it changes up and down depending on, you know, what's going on in our lives and things like that. But I've really found that there's such a deep correlation to what people are, how people are internalizing events, how they're carrying uh, wounds or baggage or negative experiences, um, how they're framing those experiences, and then the phenomenon that they end up experiencing in their in their day to day world. So, for example, I find that the people who are are having these these really terrifying haunting experiences and reporting that the, the same types of visions, just, just horrible looking beings and and things like that, um, are generally not dealing with there's, there's something going on with them emotionally and it's almost like that emotion becomes a bit of a filter for what's going on you know outside of them whether they're you know projecting a manifestation outward or whether this you know this there's a, a living breathing thing that's that's moving around it seems to be very directly correlated with sort of the general energy and emotional state um that they're they're kind of ex- living in on, on a day-to-day basis that's what i've found anyway
3: Uh, Just hang on a second, because this is a perfect time, I think, for for me to um, really connect you to uh, on a common level. And that is, uh, Morgan, your book, Teaching the Living, From Heartbreak to Happiness in a Haunted Home. Now, what you were just saying about the emotional energy and so on really resonated with me with respect to what, David, you had said in our past interviews about how you felt that your being drawn towards UFOs was a reflection of losing your dying mom. And I'm seeing that there's these same types of emotional energies that are involved. So maybe could you just tell Morgan about this experience in, in your own words, and then Morgan, provide some feedback.
2: I became a ufologist at age 12, going on 13. And it was, as I've described somewhat earlier on this show, a sudden conversion. I read Gray Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, the centerpiece of which is the three men in black. Barker was the creator of the myth of the men in black. The three men in black who silence UFO investigators, who discover the horrible, dreadful, terrifying truth about the UFOs. Looking back on it, I find myself thinking, why did this book, which I think most people would say, this is is just wild, this is just fantastic, why did it seem to me unquestionably true? And the answer for me was that I knew the three men in black personally, that I grew up in a house, I was an only child, and my mother was slowly dying of a heart condition. That was our horrible secret which we could not speak about I didn't see UFOs but I did develop the conviction of their reality which may serve the same function
11: that's fascinating yeah and, and uh, you know I can I can so relate to that in, in many ways because my earliest experiences that I can remember were back in uh, when I was about the same age and I think when we're Carrying secrets like that, you know, and sort of the the uh, the old cliche, which is, uh, you know, you're only as, as sick as your secrets. I, I think there's there's Ooh, something
2: that's to, beautiful. You know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I di- I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was just.
11: No, uh, oh no, uh, not at all. I I, I think oh thank you well yeah i think I think there's there's really so much weight to that statement and you know when we when we carry this stuff into to our daily experiences, I really do think when when we don't deal with that with those emotions, it really does change who we are and I know with for me i've I've had the experience of my my father passing away um he died of cancer and it was it was awful it was years of of a lot of heartache with with for that and whatnot, which didn't come for me until till far later, but, um, you know, I think whenever we're told that, you know, you're to, to suppress something or we're to bury it and we're not to process it, you know, how that comes forward and and creates in our world, you know, it's like a wound that just doesn't stop bleeding. And we think that, okay, if that, you know, it, it's only isolated to this one thing, but when we're wounded, we bleed over everything and yes. it yes. leads into different You know, areas of our our experiences, and it taints how we're perceiving the world, taints what we're attracting, all of that.
2: My mind skitters off listening to you to a, a question that has often intrigued me, which is why is it that in contemporary ufology, the central issue is not so much the UFOs up in the sky, but the supposed suppression of information relating to them. I mean, that whole business about disclosure and the the messianic, I mean, when you call it AD after disclosure, I think it's fair to say that's messianic. And perhaps what you're saying gives me a clue that not just for me, but for the entire UFO culture, it is the secrecy and the suppression that is crucial.
11: Yeah, I think you could be onto something with that because, I mean, the idea of of suppression and whatnot as well, I think sometimes gives people, uh, if, if they know that information or they feel they know that information, it gives them a false, maybe like even a false sense of, of power or, or specialness that, yeah. you know, we have this information, but you don't have this information, but that's okay. You know, you're, oh, you'll get there eventually. And I, yeah, I think you're really onto something with that.
3: What I see here is a really interesting parallel in that, on one hand, we we can talk about UFOs, but they are uh, a paranormal experience. And then, Morgan, we've got hauntings, which are also a paranormal experience. And what I'm seeing is a whole bunch of common themes in what you're saying, David, as well as what you're saying, Morgan, that come together to cause these two different and yet still similar types of phenomena because they're both in the realm of the paranormal.
2: I mean as a teen ufologist I would have utterly rejected that, that that we were we weren't dealing with stuff like ghosts we were dealing with science but you know now now looking back on it especially as a professor of religion I can say yeah yeah it really is uh too paranormal phenomena
11: yeah, well, and I think, too, it depends on how you define paranormal. You know, I mean, I think it's, it, you know, we, we think of it as something that, that's, that's super normal or, you know, out of the ordinary. And yet, even in the reports of, of hauntings and things like that, it's something like 75% of people have had one of these experiences, whether it be, you know, a UFO or what they think is a ghost or whatever it is. And, you know, it makes you wonder, like, is this something that is really indeed paranormal? Or is this just, are we dealing with a human experience that, that again, we're, we're back to that whole idea of suppression? Yeah.
2: I mean, and as you, you may have picked up from the earlier part of the show, I take a, a fairly strictly, this is human projection. Yeah. But
11: yeah, and with, I agree.
2: With, with the caveat that I regard the human-animal and the human mind as vastly more mysterious than we normally think of it. So when we say, oh, it's just human, do we really know what a human being is? I don't think I do.
1: I've met enough people over my life where I wonder just what the heck are they (laughs) or what they think (laughs) they are because it is so complicated. So in a sense here, we have so many things that we can't understand. I wonder, listening to all this, if, as much as we can theorize about a collective unconscious, is that something we could prove or demonstrate in any way? Got more to come with David and Morgan and Jean and Randall, a quartet. You're in the Paracast.
4: paracast people i'm greg carlwood the host of the higher side chats podcast an uninterrupted and action-packed interview-based show where i talk to some of the brightest minds for our troubled times about all things paranormal occult esoteric and conspiratorial after 10 years we've heard it all alien moon bases archons hollow earth technocratic and biomedical agendas magic mind control and lovecraftian monsters oh my Usually, the first hour of the show is free and the second hour is for members who sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus at $8 a month, but praise be, we're giving Paracast listeners two free weeks of plus when you use the all caps coupon code PARACAST. Go to the thehiresidechats.com, sign up with the code PARACAST, and dive into the nearly never-ending archive of great interviews I've been lucky enough to get over the years, from David Politis to David Icke, and many, many guests not named David. Check it out, you're going to love it. All right, was that good? Can we use
22: that one? Attention, business owners, body slammed by overwhelming debt. If your business is in trouble, hassled by creditors, if you're frustrated, finally fed up with big business bailouts while your business has been left for dead, please listen close. There's a brand new fast-track bankruptcy. Some have even called it the biggest small business bailout in American history designed for individuals and their businesses. And look, almost no one knows about this yet. My attorney wasn't even aware of it. The truth is, beating the system has never been easy because it's rigged, in a sense, against the little guy. But here's the jaw-dropping news nobody's talking about. They've literally just changed the system so that you can beat it. But only if you understand how the new game has to be played. Find out if you qualify at PocketsOfLight.com. This government-backed small business repair program is still legal, but may not be renewed after the election. Fight back fairly, fight back ethically at PocketsOfLight.com.
17: Any
9: time. Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625.
13: 800-503-8625. You've seen crazy diets to lose weight.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast
1: community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Now we have a quartet. We can set up a vocal group. Any of you play a musical instrument other than Randall? (laughs) I,
11: I sort of sort of play piano a little bit, but I, I mean, I you know, I wouldn't go ranting about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither would I, so don't worry about that. I just, <laughs> I, I just try to make it sound like I wanted it to at the time, and, and but please, you know, no requests. Yeah. Okay, well, this is really interesting because also, uh, Morgan, what we've found in talking with other people who are entity seekers, like yourself, or I know you don't like the term ghost hunter, but there is a high correlation between hauntings and UFO experiences. And now talking with you, David, we're seeing that there is also this high correlation in the way we can look at both kinds of experiences coming from the same sort of psychological psychological mind space. If, if there's a you know, for the lack of a better term, or this collective unconscious. Morgan, are you familiar at all with Carl Jung's work? Oh, yes, very much. Okay, so there, I think you two have something in common to deal with. Do you think that perhaps maybe ghosts and UFOs are both coming out of that particular collective unconscious archetypal imagery?
11: Who wants to go first? <laughs> I guess for for me, I think there's there's definitely some underlying and, and overlapping uh, causes with a lot of it, and I'm I'm not massively into the the UFO field like you are, David. So I'm, I'm probably ignorant on a bit of it, um, but. I find that regardless of the experiences on the external we're still it still comes back to the people that are experiencing it. So when we're looking at you know all of this external phenomenon ultimately we have to look at the observers. Oh. So I think just right there we have a core commonality: these the observers are the same. So, you know, we ha- we have to be able to take a look at that, and I think it, it begins to to link everything together a little bit.
2: That's one of my watchwords: that the witness is a part of the sighting, or I should say, the vision. And the example that I gave in my book was that of John Lennon and May Pang together yes. with witnessing a UFO on a. Uh, the, the, a summer evening that had been of a day that had been hot and then had cooled off, and in their narrat- narrations of it, they keep harping on that we that uh, they were naked, and you know if it was just that they were happened to be in the place to see an extraterrestrial vehicle. Why is their nakedness important? But to me, this is an archetypal scene of the naked couple. Standing before the numinous presence, the Lord God who comes to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where art thou?
1: Yeah, but we remember also that John Lennon was anything but religious. Don't know about
2: May Pang. Yeah. Now, that might be. OK, this is this is the psychoanalytic heads I win, tails you lose, right? That if he was <laughs> religious, we could say, yeah, OK, no wonder he'd have a religious vision like Father Gill But now I can say, well, the religious part of him was what he repressed, as in Mm -hmm. his song, Imagine, where he imagines there's no heaven, there's just the unenchanted sky. And then the unenchanted sky says to John Lennon, I am not so easily banished. Yeah! Wow, I just love this
3: conversation. Yes, me
17: too.
3: <laughs> the other way we might look at this is if we're looking at at that kind of imagery. And David, this is something that actually you've brought up in past interviews. Is that there's this sort of von Daniken-itis or this this view that if that well, all of the ancient sightings or descriptions in biblical times were just mistaken. Yeah for some sort of a, a craft, a material craft, nuts and bolts craft, but that that really does a disservice to the way that they looked at things in those days from their mindset in the period at the time. So, let's say we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we have this imagery of the two, you know, Adam and Eve before God. Well, Adam and Eve weren't religious. To them, that was just their life. They were just yes. experiencing it.
2: There was no religion for them, right? I don't know. I don't know. I guess the key to my comparison is the sense of the numinosity of that presence. Well, like religion came way later. Like we know that, right?
3: Like in the story, if you can imagine yourself being there at the time, it's just like this is your life, and this is like this, this being that takes care of you until it got upset because... You, know, you ate from the knowledge of tree and you know, of good and evil. You know, so it was, do you, do you get what I'm saying, right? To them, yeah. there had been no religion. There was no church. There was no there was no bow down and pray because of all of the things that were purportedly God did. I don't know that God ever gave the lecture to Adam and Eve that he created the, the heavens and the earth. You know, we get that yeah. before Adam and Eve came along. I don't know how they got to know it but remember
2: that adam and eve never existed that they are myth mythic projections of people who live in a world where there is religion and as as myth the story ha, has it makes its truth claim and that's why we never forget it any more than you are ever going to forget the gingerbread house in the woods Hmm. How do we tie
3: this back to where we were before, though? Like we were talking about John Lennon, May Pang, religious say, iconography, and and saying, okay, well, you know, so John Lennon wasn't religious, but in the in the symbolism,
2: they don't have to be. Yeah, yeah, that this is something archetypal that crops up in out, out of the unconscious of the storyteller in Genesis who gives it in its full ambiguity its enduring power, and it also crops up in the lives of these two would-be secular people.
1: Apropos of nothing I should mention here that's widely assumed that the song Imagine, the lyrics were mostly written by Yoko Ono, to which he adapted oh. it and put music
2: to it. Mm, that's that is interesting. That Randall was it. You who suggested that I, I remember. Well, on one show I was being interviewed. That it seemed to me we had that trio of Adam and Eve before the Numinous equals John Lennon and May Pang before the UFO, and the fourth is the snake and yoko ono was it you who made that yeah. comparison yeah, that <laughs> i thought it was me. Yeah, i know that was brilliant. yoko
1: <laughs> well but, everybody yeah, is I trying mean, to really really <laughs> give yoko i'm guilty a bad rap and <laughs> i think that julian lennon had things to say about that we've got morgan and david and jean and randall you're in the <laughs>
10: NSA Radio News with Dan Naraki. As the United States passed 12 million coronavirus cases this week, there has been some good news in the fight against COVID-19. An antibody treatment from Regeneron has been granted an emergency use approval from the FDA. And Pfizer applied for emergency approval with the FDA after data from the Stage 3 trial of their vaccine showed it to be 95% effective in preventing infection. With the news that a vaccine could be right around the corner, many are asking what the administration's plans are for distributing it. White House Deputy Press Secretary Brian Morgenstern told Fox News that their plan would make sure that the most vulnerable Americans are are able to be vaccinated first. Those in nursing homes, long-term care facilities over a certain age with comorbidities, that's how we'll distribute it to make sure that those Americans who have the highest risks are vaccinated fastest so that we can reduce their level of anxiety, reduce their level of risk, so that we can get back to normal life really as fast as possible. This is USA Radio News. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar says a coronavirus vaccine could be ready for distribution days after it gets approval from the FDA. Timberg has the details from the USA Radio News Phoenix Bureau.
3: The nation's first coronavirus vaccine is set to go before the FDA on December 10th. That's when an advisory board will meet to consider Pfizer's request for emergency approval. The company reports the vaccine is 95% effective. Regarding the timing of things, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, "Within weeks we could have a decision from FDA and within 24 hours of that we will have started distributing
23: millions of doses of safe and effective vaccine to begin protecting our most vulnerable
10: across America. The Texas National Guard has been deployed to El Paso to assist with morgue operations as that city's hospitals near full capacity. There are currently more than 300 COVID patients in El Paso's intensive care units, and hospitals have brought in 10 temporary morgue trailers to deal with the spike in deaths. This is USA Radio News.
12: Tehibo Tea Club's original Pure Pau Arco Super Tea helps build the red corpuscles in the blood which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. A one-pound package of tea is $34.95 plus shipping. To order, please visit ShopSuperTea.com. That's Shop, S-H-O-P, Super, S-U-P-E-R, T-T-E-A, dot com. So the complete website is ShopSuperTea.com or call us at 818-984. 6100 Monday through Saturday 9 to 5 California time. Then shop supertee.com at 818-984-6100. This is Jerome Clark, co-author of the UFO
16: Encyclopedia and Other Books. You're listening to the Paracast.
1: So isn't it strange how in talking about the phenomenon, the James Fox movie, we refer to these Zimbabwe sighting involving middle school children and end up with biblical phenomena. And then with John Lennon and May Pang and maybe even Yoko Ono. But getting back to the phenomenon, because we have only like a couple of seconds left and I want to really hit this four square. There was a third sighting you wrote about. David, yes, would you want yes. to bring that one up?
2: Westall High School in Melbourne, Australia. And although I say high school, apparently Australian high schools at the time extended down to what we would call the middle grade. Do you mind if I would digress to ask uh, Morgan a question here? Sure. Which is, uh, Morgan, yes. do you find that the sightings of ghosts and spirits are distributed over different age groups of children, or is it primarily those on the cusp of puberty? And from my question, you know what answer I'm hinting at.
11: Absolutely. It's funny because usually there seems to be a pretty broad range, um, but where the difference is, is that the reports of, say, for example, like poltergeist or, or psychokinetic activity typically hits in the puberty range, so, the kids as young as you know, three, four, five, six years old, are, you know, are reporting, or parents and, and whatnot are reporting that their kids are seeing things and the kids are saying different things and whatnot. You know, and lots of reports, uh, from the younger age groups, uh, in, in regards to things like uh, reincarnation and stuff like that. So, um, researchers like Ian, uh, Ian Stevenson, uh, they date you know, kids back quite young, yeah, as soon as you get into into the puberty range, that's when people start reporting the the sort of the psychokinetic movement of objects. Um, kids are able to move the, their physical reality around and things like that.
2: Because, I mean, I'm struck that at Ariel, it seems to have been the older kids who had the experiences, the younger kids yeah, didn't see anything or notice anything in westall it also seems to have been the uh, older kids the kids just on the on the verge of puberty okay what happened at westall first of all there was a sighting of some sort of a grayish silvery object in the sky the science teacher, Andrew Greenwood, who saw it and was interviewed a little over a year afterwards, says that it was there, but you, he didn't notice it at first until the kids pointed it out to him. But once it was pointed out, it was impossible not to see it. Hundreds of kids and the science teachers saw it from the grounds of the school. Then it seemed to go down in what was called the Grange, a grove of pine trees off the school yard, separ- the, the school grounds separated from the school by a number of uh, private gardens, uh, it was a kitchen gardens, I think you call them, and that it seemed to go down amid the pine trees, at which point the students jumped the fence, or large numbers of them, ran after where they thought the object had gone down, and apparently not long afterwards told stories about how they'd seen it on the ground. I say apparently because we know this from the recollections of Greenwood, which are not always unimpeachable. And from the memories of the kids long afterwards, that Shane Ryan who did a, just a, a fantastically great job investigating them, and he's the hero of a wonderful movie, Westall 66. And here it seems to me that the question of the transformation of experience in these people's memories is important. Unlike at Ariel, you do not have contemporary videos of the kids being interviewed. So there's an important piece missing. But what has struck me is the parallel between Westall and Ariel. In both cases, there is a landing in a wild and I will go so far as to say forbidden area off the school grounds. In the one case, Westall, the kids jump the boundary. In the other case, Ariel, the kids observe the boundary. And the aliens do too. They don't impinge on the school grounds, but they and the kids face each other across the boundary. And I think that some similar factors are operating in both i found in drawings done after the long after the fact by the westall kids there are some that seem to me powerfully sexual and shane ryan in westall 66 remarks and I've made so much out of his remark that he probably regrets having made it, that the Grange was a place for illicit smoking and steamy liaisons. <laughs> and one of the teachers who was there at the time, who is quite sure there was no UFO landing, has written that the real story of Westall is that this was a migrant community whose people, whose kids made all often very great successes of themselves in Australian society, and that the UFO gave them a common tradition, a common story, which to me fits into this pattern that I think I can detect running from Boyanai and the Father Gill sightings down to Ariel.
1: Well, then we're saying that they unconsciously did this?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think so. There was an interview that James Fox managed to get with the science teacher who finally came out. He was approached by some military people. He says, to, you will not talk about this or you will lose all of your pension. You'll never get a job again. Uh-huh. Finally, he came forward and said that he, too, had seen the craft. And being a science teacher, it was like nothing that he could explain in terms of his knowledge of science on top of all the other people that saw it. I mean, I love the the symbolism. I love this way of looking at it that you've got. Uh, there's something to it because it maps onto it in a way that is indisputable. And yet, I can't help but think there really is something to it. Just like Morgan, I think maybe you think that... In terms of afterlives, there really is some sort of an entity in an afterlife in many cases. And yet all of these same things that David are talking about map onto those experiences. And indeed, if if we're talking about the sexual aspects of hauntings, we can also talk about the sexual aspects of abductions. Right. Both both of them have. So maybe let's uh, let's look at that a little bit. What's a succubus? If you know, if that's not a type of haunting, almost like of an
2: alien being. Randall, may I respond to the thing about Greenwood, the science teacher? Because oh, sure. the story he told in The Phenomenon, he told a very similar story to Shane Ryan, but didn't insist on anonymity. I don't know why he suddenly decided he wanted to be anonymous, but he was interviewed. Uh, a little over a year after the after the event, in December of 1967, by the American physicist and UFO researcher, James McDonald, and he did not breathe a word about that story of being visited by officials and threatened. Even though McDonald, coming straight from the NICAP, uh, Gene well remembers NICAP, the NICAP business about Air Force suppression, McDonald kept saying to him, kept hinting, he should be saying something about official suppression. He did not say a word. And I am convinced that the threats uh, that were made to him were indeed made, but not by any officials, but by the headmaster of the school, who was violently, fanatically opposed to the whole idea of UFOs we got one more segment
1: to spend with Dave Halpern and then Morgan Knudsen will be hanging around also for after the Paracast. With Gene and Randall, you're in the Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the Paracast.plus to learn more about...
14: Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one
9: system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience; just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silverlungs generator allows you to make your own. So stop paying for silver solutions. The a lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com.
2: That's 800-215-1727.
10: Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast.
1: So David Halpern, you're saying it was the
2: headmaster who gave the warning, not men in black or government agents not been in black not government agents the only government agents who visited the school and this is this uh, greenwood told mcdonald were two r a RAAF uh, officers who came to the school to look into the sighting they were treated with raw hostility by the headmaster who basically told them this is all nonsense go away and they went away i suspect relieved to be able to cross one more item off their to-do list and that was it
1: so how come things changed instead of the headmaster it was government agents how did that
2: change and why I don't know why he changed it. My sense is that what the headmaster did to him was so vicious and so humiliating, which is to say that, and he talks about this, sort of mumbles about this to McDonald, that the headmaster said in front of an assembly of the entire school that Greenwood was having a hangover which to me is just extraordinary behavior. And it would make sense to me that he found it so utterly humiliating that he transferred it outside.
11: It, it would make a lot of sense, too, because we, when you look at even even in regards to, to haunting phenomenon and things like that, the level of shame that can be pressed on to people about these incidents you know whether or not they actually saw them or you know whatever whatever happened i think shame and the underbelly of that shame which is which can be so ugly can start to reshape people's people's stories and people's perceptions about what happened too
2: that seems to me absolutely clear in the case of greenwood there are other aspects of Uh, where memories of trends in connection with Westall, where memories, you can trace their transformation over the years.
1: Now, as I said, I'm sure that James Fox was quite sincere in including well-known UFO cases to depict in the movie The Phenomenon. He's a movie director and producer. He's not a UFO investigator. The question is here is... Some things like this are way out of space as far as people like that are concerned, like most UFO researchers are concerned. So, would you agree with me, David Halpern, that Fox was perfectly sincere in assuming these basically buttressed his case about possible visitors from outer space?
2: I've seen no reason to question his sincerity and I believe he has proved two things. One is that there are some genuinely baffling cases and the other is that the the tinfoil hat stereotype of the UFO believer is not only false but libelous.
1: Now it's certainly true here that a movie like The Phenomenon is not meant for you, it's not meant for me, it's not meant for Randall. We're Old hands at this thing, probably not meant for Morgan either, but meant for the general public, totally or only partly familiar with the subject, maybe totally unfamiliar with the ins and the outs. And this is a way to present it all to them, to say this all needs more investigation, which is certainly true. We need to understand what happened here. And certainly if the three episodes we talked about here are not representative of spaceships. They still are events, strange events, unusual events that we need to understand. And whether or not they relate to the entire UFO mystery is another story entirely.
2: Now, Gene and Randall, Randall's remark about the abductions, the sexual elements of the abductions and the comparison of the myths of the succubi and the incubi lead me to a point I did not make in my review. But I want to raise here, and I don't know if we have any time to talk about it. But we have maybe three, four minutes before Okay, closing I will say credits. it very quickly. The movie absolutely ignores UFO abductions. Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber might never have existed if you watch the phenomenon. And I think this is a point that at least deserves remark.
3: I have well, a feeling I mean, he might uh, have assumed they were too extreme. To get Late. into. Well, to be fair, John Mack was featured fairly prominently. Sure. Yeah. But no hint that he's an abduction researcher. That is true. That is true. I mean, But those who know, he, I mean, that's what he did, right? Yes. But that is kind
1: of the feeling I have here, that there were certain efforts to be politically correct. You get into Roswell briefly, you get into these cases, but as soon as you start talking about Barney and Betty Hill and Communion and Hickson and Parker and Travis Walton,
3: that's worth another movie. Oh, indeed. And next time you're on, David, we got to get into Hickson and Parker because there is a whole other case where we can apply a whole other layer upon layer of symbolism again. Oh,
2: can't we do that? We can do it. (laughs) We can do it in grand style. There's one thing, too, we can do. David, I don't know if he'd be willing, but
1: he's been on the show twice, and I've had some friendly exchanges with him. See if Calvin Parker would like to come on again and talk about it. Maybe then these are things you can ask him directly.
2: Okay, boy, that is a challenge.
1: (laughs) I wonder if he'd be up to it or not, because, again, you're not saying the guy made it up. You're saying there was a legitimate explanation for something that really happened to them.
2: An explanation which I haven't really found. So what's your take about UFO abductions, Morgan?
11: I, I find it really fascinating because it is how it, it can be culturally centered. The description of these aliens that are doing the abductions tend to be culturally centered. So in the West we have the Grays, South America, we tend to have the more animal looking entities and things like that. So I, I definitely think everything that we've been talking about here absolutely applies to these abduction instances and you know in relationship to to the hauntings, what comes up for me is the doris uh, blither case uh, in culver city california where it uh, was investigated by uh, dr barry taff and uh, carrie gainer she had come to them saying that she was basically being attacked and raped by this this entity that was coming into her room And coming into the house at night and things like that and what was interesting about that case was that uh, when Dr. Barry Taft got into it he discovered that she had this very questionable relationship with her kids and the older son and the other two I believe there was three kids three sons and what was interesting was that the number of entities that she claimed were abusing her were the same as the number of kids that she had in the house and things like this she was a you know alcoholic at the time she was there was a lot going on with her psychologically but it was interesting how these these two things began to overlap again i, I think everything that we've talked about it completely overlaps with with hauntings and i think the uh, i think the abduction phenomenon needs to be continually researched
1: david Halperin, and tell our listeners please where they can find more of your stuff and that will include those
2: blogs we were talking about on the show My website is www.DavidHalperin, one word, and Halperin is H-A-L as in Leon, P as in Peter, E-R-I-N as in Nova Scotia, dot net. And, of course, my book, Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO. Morgan, where do we find your stuff?
11: You can find me at entityseeker.ca. Uh, and then, of course, Facebook is under Entity Seeker as well. All one word, no S on the end. Uh, and you can find me there, including all my videos and uh, my weekly uh, live stream, which is uh, spiritual health care. Uh, and that's on both Facebook and YouTube.
1: You can find us on Twitter. Look for the PowerCast. Look for the PowerCast on Facebook. Look for branded PowerCast merchandise. At the Paracast.shop, that's the Paracast.shop, the throw pillows, the t shirts, all that. Look for the Paracast Plus, where Morgan will continue our discussion with us as part of your membership for after the Paracast, part of your membership with the Paracast Plus. And to subscribe, Check out the Paracast.plus, the Plus For a long-term subscription, we'll give you a free coupon code for The Phenomenon, the James Fox UFO documentary with three extra hours of material, the Paracast.plus. David Halperin, thank you for joining us.
2: And thank you both so much for having me.
1: Morgan, thank you for joining us, too.
20: Thank you, guys.